Welcome to the Memorial Weekend Dream Pod. I am Steve Fezzik. A rare pod that I am hosting, R.J. Bell, has been out sick Tuesday and Wednesday. He missed the Straight Out of Vegas radio shows, but we have every expectation R.J. will indeed be back on Thursday. Normally you'd think, oh, no R.J., maybe some limited content, but oh, no, we got a chock-full podcast here, including some input from R.J. Bell. Here's what's coming, guys. So we're going to talk about the neon has been off in Las Vegas. However, that's about to change, apparently, and... MLB and NBA also looking to launch. We're going to update you on where we stand and our outlook on both of those leagues. I'm going to be talking about the NFL and teams we may well look to fade early in the year and the reasons why. We're going to have best bets. I'll have a best bet. Dave Essler, Diamond Dave, will have his best bet and a best bet from Tommy, the hitman, so three pregame pros giving you their best bets. Then we're going to have a deep dive. R.J. Bell will talk about his impressions of the last dance, and I'll have a few comments after that as well. And then finally, I know everyone's waiting for this, an update on the Fezzik McKenzie Poker Showdown and where we stand so far. So a show chock full of information, I got to tell you. I am excited about all this. Let's go ahead and begin. The neon has been off here in Sin City, and i got to be honest, it has been a rough go for Las Vegas. Our city has been hit by the COVID shutdowns as much, I think, as any city in the country, and it is eerie. You go to the Las Vegas Strip, and what do you see? Construction workers, security, some homeless and a few brave joggers going up and down the Strip, an empty Las Vegas Strip. But uh, finally, some good news. Las Vegas Sands, they're the owners of the Venetian. They've reported that they expect to reopen the Venetian. Now, not the Palazzo yet, just the Venetian, but they plan to open the hotel and the casino June 1st. So this is great news that uh, Vegas looks to be having a limited reopening in the near future. Now, it's not going to be what it was. There's going to be a limited capacity in the casinos. Let me outline what the Nevada gaming regulation rules are. So Blackjack suggested only three players per table. Roulette, four people. Craps, six people. And here's the real key one. Poker, four people. I think that when these casinos reopen on a limited basis, and like I said, Venetian has already reported this, I expect that the MGM is going to open up Bellagio and New York, New York, either on that same day or with a timetable that is very similar, along with a few other casinos. I think we're going to have a soft reopening here. I do think that there's going to be people playing in the casinos, but I think one area that's really going to be impacted by all this are the poker rooms, and here's why. That four-player maximum per table is going to be a deal-breaker for most poker players. The vast majority of live games in Nevada are dealt to full tables. In fact, my experience has been every time we see tables drop down to less than six players, so five players, players look to bail, they look to leave. The social aspect is no longer there. It is uh, too often the action is upon them. The rake is too high with um, someone winning a hand more rapidly. 
And because of that, I think there's going to be a lot of casinos that are going to reopen without the poker room opening up. And I frankly expect, at least in the short term, that we unfortunately are going to see poker rooms closing. Of course, we're still waiting to hear about the World Series of Poker. It got canceled this summer. World Series of Poker is always in the summer. And I know that the Rio and Harris is still hopeful that they can go ahead and host the World Series of Poker for the fall. That's still a possibility. We'll have to keep our fingers crossed and see what happens. But um, the great news is that the neon looks like it's going to be coming back on. And breaking news, the MGM just announced you're no longer going to have to pay for parking. And I think that this is a big deal, and here's why. One, no one liked to pay for parking anyways, but I think it shows the casinos are going to be making concessions to the players. They're going to be offering amenities. They're going to be offering special deals to bring people back in. And I think, frankly, as Vegas got more and more crowded and that was unnecessary, the ability to spot those deals and to find them was becoming harder and harder. So everyone who likes their $9.99 steak and lobster specials and they've all disappeared, maybe they will be coming back. I certainly think that they will be. So for the most part, very good news here in Sin City. Let's talk about getting some pro sports back in action. Now, we've already seen this on the individual side. Obviously, UFC events are going on in Jacksonville. We're seeing NASCAR's return to races in Darlington and a full schedule of the NASCAR circuit. So far, so good. No hiccups with that. And we are all excited to get NBA and MLB back up and running. Wanted to go ahead and spend a little time to discuss that NBA breaking news. The Athletic reporting that it is now Orlando that is favored to be a host city. And the expectation is there's the NBA is going to attempt to have one or at most two host cities to go ahead and have teams not necessarily play in a bubble, but just play in a host city, bring all the teams there. And the feeling is the games are going to be without crowds. So because there are no crowds, why is there really a need to play games in home arenas? And the NBA, I think, really has gotten this right because think about the logistics. It's going to be difficult with players traveling, and it's going to be difficult uh, to confine players over a long period of time to one location. However, in this case, the NBA season, the regular season, was almost over. I don't know if they're going to go straight to the playoffs. I don't know if they're going to finish the regular season, maybe have teams play five to seven games. Regardless, the vast majority of teams will be able to finish their seasons within a month, and they'll be back home with their families all the teams will be able to play and be done probably in two months. If they start up in July, season would be over by end of August, early September. And it makes a lot more sense to have all the players in one central location or two because they don't have to get on planes and travel. And certainly there's the security issue there, the risk of more players getting infected doing that. And further, just the testing, the logistics of it, so much easier to go ahead and be able to test people right there in that city. I think this is going to work. Now, I'm biased. I would like to see Vegas be a host city as well. I think we're uniquely qualified to do so. We have the Summer League here every year. Of course, that was canceled. We have the facilities. We have the arenas. We have the empty hotels to host the players. And let's face it, during March Madness, 
we've shown the ability to host multiple events where the Pac-12 tournament, the Mountain West tournament, other collegiate tournaments are all going on, oftentimes simultaneously. So I would love to see there be two host cities, Orlando and Vegas, and then the finals. And I might add also, I've heard that some concerns are that, oh, players are going to get distracted in Las Vegas. Can't bring them to Sin City for this. Well, if ever there's a time, a safe time to come to Las Vegas, it's right now where it is a very tame Las Vegas. So it's not like the Vegas uh, nightclubs and the like are all going to open up and players are going to be out till four in the morning at um, Encore or Excess or any of the other clubs that don't allow me in because I'm not cool enough. I think that that is a non-issue. So the Disney-esque Orlando environment probably will be very similar here in Vegas. I do know Orlando has the inside track as reported by The Athletic and by ESPN. And I think that a big part of that is the relationship that Disney has with Adam Silver, uh, with Chris Paul as well, that executives with the MGM are certainly in a position that uh, I would be, frankly, very surprised if the NBA wasn't able to move forward with this in Orlando and or in Vegas, possibly Phoenix, and that they don't get this done. And I do think the NBA, all signs point looking positive. What's interesting to me is the NBA was very proactive when COVID first hit. Remember, Rudy Gobert went down March 12th with the positive test, and immediately the NBA canceled all their games. They were the first league to suspend operations. And they were very player-friendly in that sense, very concerned about players' health. And the fact that that was front and center, I think that the NBA, now that the UFC has opened, now that we've seen NASCAR open up, I understand those are individual sports, but I think that the NBA is well-positioned to be the first uh, major American sports team sport to reopen here with COVID going on. MLB. MLB has some challenges that the NBA doesn't have. I still think they're going to get this done. But let me outline why I'm a little less confident about the MLB. First off, the plan that the MLB has proposed to the players is regional games only. So players are going to have to travel, but not certainly have to travel great distances. But they are going to go ahead and have to get on planes. And because of that, there's going to have to be testing done in multiple different sites. That's um, an additional hurdle that the NBA won't have. And, of course, the risk of having all the players together on a plane. And I think that, to be realistic, we're going to have to expect in MLB and NFL that we are going to see some positive tests. And, frankly, I was really pleased I saw the NFL was discussing, hey, we know we're going to have some players test positive. Here is what we plan to do. And I know MLB is making similar sort of plans, so that's a real positive sign. How can we get through this despite what inevitably will be some positive tests? I'm a little bit concerned about a few aspects. One is I've heard the players already – talking about the new rules, the social distancing rules and how onerous they are. There'll be no spitting. Players will have to sit apart in the dugouts. And frankly, I got to tell you, I think that this is a little bit, I, I don't relate to this in that America is starved for sports. We need you, MLB. If you guys have to learn not to spit and not to shake hands and sit next to each other in the dugout, I don't think that's asking too much to be able to 
go ahead and abide by those rules. What's um, going to be the biggest hurdle, though, of course, is the money. So here's what's happened with MLB. There was never revenue sharing or a salary cap in the past in MLB. So there was a contract out there for the players, and back in March, it was clear we weren't going to be able to play a full season. An agreement was made. The players were going to take a haircut, basically a pro rata haircut. If they play half the games, they're going to get their half of their salary. So someone making $10 million, now they're going to make $5 million. Well, now it turns out it's very unlikely we're going to have fans in the stands. And because of that, there's going to be less revenue because there's no gate that's going to be happening, no concessions. So baseball overall is going to make less money. And now here's the contention. The players are saying, well, we have an agreement. If I'm the player that was going to make $10 million, I already agreed to be paid $5 million. Why do I need to make another concession? The owners are saying, wait, back in March when we discussed this, this was an additional point of discussion that we, we said there would have to be an additional adjustment if there were no fans. So we're going to have to see how this all winds up netting out in negotiations. But I can say this. I get it. The players don't want to go and completely rip up the existing contract they have and go basically with a 50-50% revenue split and everything I've read says it's hard to determine these revenues anyways. I get that. So I can see the players rejecting the owner's latest proposal. However, I think it's critical that these guys can meet in the middle and that there is a season. Absolutely critical. So whether that baseball player, maybe he's not going to be able to make that $5 million. I don't think he should have to go all the way down to an estimated about $3 million based upon a 50-50 revenue split and no revenue from fans, maybe the answer is he should make about $4 million. Somewhere in the middle, it is critical, in my opinion, the players and the owners meet and come to an agreement, and here's why. It's one year. It's 2020. No one is going to make the money that they would have made before COVID. However, I guarantee you this. Baseball has fallen in popularity. NFL is America's passion. NBA is becoming just a year-long sport for a lot of people to follow with the NBA draft, with all of the players becoming superstars, and I think MLB is a clear number three. Tom Glavin just said that players are at risk of taking the blame if the baseball season's called off. Well, I think there's going to be plenty of blame to go around both the players and the owners. I know this. Come 2021, if there's no 2020 MLB season, and I'm not saying that's going to happen. I do not believe that's going to happen. I do believe they're going to get this right and fix this. But I think there will be major implications in terms of baseball's long-term popularity, and here's why. We're all sitting at home. We're all desperate for team sports to continue and if we don't see them, if we don't see the MLB players play, especially if NBA plays throughout the summer, well, all of a sudden, I think all of us can sit back and say, you know what? I don't need these guys. I don't need MLB. NBA goes most years through June, and I've got preseason football coming in August. And I, there's plenty of tennis and golf and hot dog eating in July to get me through those other months. And frankly, uh, I think a lot of Americans are getting used to doing other things at home. So I think it's critical that MLB gets this right 
And if they don't, I think there's going to be long-standing problems. Before we move to the NFL, I want to get McKenzie's input on viability of NBA and MLB. McKenzie, by July, we'll go ahead and say July 30th, what's the probability that we have NBA games being played? Same question, MLB. The NBA, I'm going to say there's a 90% chance we start by July 30th. And I'm the only really consideration I'm thinking is what to do with the $100 I will have earned from our little friendly wager, Steve Fezzik, on will there be NBA. You were a little pessimistic a couple weeks ago. I, I, I took advantage. All right. A little bit extra answer than I expected. But, yes, I did back when things were not looking so positive. Mackenzie and I did make that bet, and he's looking very good with that. So you put 90% NBA. How about MLB? Wait, wait, wait. wait. What was the bet? The bet was Mackenzie and I wagered, will there be a, a start back up at the NBA season? I think we – did we make a pick of Mackenzie? We made even money. Even money. By a certain date or just that it would come back? This season. This season. And, yep. and, and what happened is that uh, – I made a bad call there. I, <laughs> I heard that the players were going to get polled whether they wanted to return. And I actually had major concerns about the fact that the season was almost over for essentially half the league – and that those players were going to come back and say, you know what, I only got five games left, and that those players would vote no. But that seems to be a non-factor. In fact, I haven't, guys, I haven't heard anything about any poll results from that other than players saying that they want to play, right? Yeah, it was an informal poll is what the reporting came out in. It was pretty much executives texted a bunch of players, hey, what do you think? Just kind of getting the, the temperature of the room. It wasn't like a formal poll, not like the ESPN LeBron versus MJ poll, which we know is very official. Uh, just kidding. Um, the MLB, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? I think 80%. I think, I think they got to get it done. There's just too much money at, the ta- too much money at, at risk. As you guys know, I am an amateur who does not bet. <laughs> so what, you want action? You want minus 200, minus 300? What do we got? What do we got here? I'm surrounded by pros. That's just a recipe right, for I, losing money. I'll give you minus 300 on the MLB coming back. I don't even know <laughs> what that means. All right. Pass. Bottom line is it looks very favorable for the NBA, and it looks favorable for MLB. They're just going to have to work out the dollars and cents. I think the other rules that they're going with, they'll be able to hammer those out. And, of course, they'll have to go ahead and comply with all um, health guidelines and the like. And I think that that's just a matter of working out details, whether players, how they can effectively and safely shower after the games and things like that. We talked about making some money. Let's talk about some NFL teams and maybe teams that we can make money selectively looking to bet against early in the year. And so I was thinking to myself, I was thinking just a couple nights ago, what's going to be different this year versus any other NFL year? And came to the conclusion, wow, it's really going to be difficult for teams with new coaching staffs because there's no OTAs. There's going to be limited practices. A lot of these teams aren't even going to start practicing until July or even August, potentially. And who is that going to impact the most? And I'll make the case, well, teams with brand new head coaches and brand new coordinators, let me go ahead and identify them. And I think we're going to look to bet against these teams. I've got them ranked one through four, and I'm going to leave the best team to fade to the last. Let me go through these. So my number four team to look to bet against early in the year, the Cleveland Browns. So brand new head coach, Stefanski comes in, and they have a brand new OC and Defensive coordinator Alex Van Pelt comes over from Cincinnati. Defensive coordinator Joe Woods. 
here's why the Browns are number four on my list. Even though they've got all this coaching um, upheaval and changes, it's a clear upgrade in coaching because let's face it, no team has had worse coaches than the Browns over the last two years with Hugh Jackson and then Freddie Kitchens. So, yes, it will be a challenge for a new coaching staff to come in. However, it is a clear upgrade, so that likely offsets everything. I still think Cleveland's best football will be played later in the year versus earlier in the year. But this is one bet. Uh, Cleveland week one is plus eight and a half at Baltimore. That would be the one bet I would not make looking to fade Cleveland. However, if you had to make, if I had to gun to my head, if I had to choose, Cleveland's a team I would want to look to bet against in September and bet on later in the year. My number three team, Washington Redskins. So Ron Rivera comes on over, takes over as head coach for Washington, has a new offensive coordinator in Scott Turner, who comes over from Washington as well. Defensive coordinator, Jack Del Rio. I don't know what Del Rio's been doing since he coached the Raiders. Uh, Chucky took over, Gruden. And not sure what Del Rio's been up to, but he's the defensive coordinator now. I think it's going to be a transition issue for the Redskins. With all those new coaches and the fact you've got a very young quarterback, Dwayne Haskins, who I think is going to – that transition is going to be more difficult for him than it would be for a veteran quarterback. So because of that, and it only being a second year, I think the Redskins are a team we're going to actively look to play against. They bring in Kyle Allen as well. So that's a distraction. Week one, Philly is minus six at Washington. If I had to bet that game, the only way I could look is towards laying six with Philadelphia. My number two NFL team to look to bet against early in the year New York Giants. Joe Judge, unproven head coach, comes in. So at least Ron Rivera, obviously a very experienced head coach. So here comes a very, uh, here comes a head coach with no experience. Now it'll help that he brings in Jason Garrett from Dallas as his OC, but again, brand new uh, OC and brand new defensive coordinator Patrick Gordon comes in from Miami. And you've got a young quarterback in Daniel Jones. So note the theme, brand new coaching staff, Young quarterback, it's going to take time to make all of this work. I know that week one myself, I already bet the Pittsburgh Steelers minus three. They're at the Giants, and I think it would be fine to bet Pittsburgh minus three and a half, even up to minus four. I think money will keep coming on Pittsburgh in this situation. And I also might add, what city has been hammered more by COVID than New York City? I know the latest numbers are much better. But uh, because of that, I think it has been a difficult offseason for all the players and, frankly, for everybody in the New York, New Jersey area. I'm going to be looking to fade the New York Giants. My number one NFL team to look to fade early in the year, the Carolina Panthers. So Carolina brings in Matt Rule from Baylor to take over. He brings his defensive coordinator, Phil Snow, from Baylor. And I think RJ mentioned this before Wow, is Phil Snow really uh, competent to be a defensive coordinator in the NFL? We'll find out. I looked at his resume. He had a cup of coffee with someone in the NFL beforehand, but limited NFL experience. Offensive coordinator, brand new Joe Brady, comes in from LSU. How much of LSU's resurgence was Brady? How much of it was that Burrow just had a tremendous year? They bring in a new quarterback in Teddy Bridgewater. So here's a situation where we check all the boxes. Brand new head coach, 
unproven, brand-new offensive coordinator, brand-new defensive coordinator who is completely unproven, and a brand-new quarterback. This is a team that clearly is on the rebuild. Week one, Las Vegas, minus one against Carolina. I already have bet on Las Vegas, and I think that the Las Vegas Raiders are a good wager here against the Carolina Panthers week one. I was wondering this. Ted, Teddy Bridgewater, the new quarterback of the Carolina Panthers, is 28-7 and seven against the spread. Does that trend concern you, or is that just an example of how a, sm- a small sample size, you can see these kind of noisy results? Teddy Bridgewater, 5-0 and against the spread last year, so part of that 28-7. and What's interesting about that is Teddy Bridgewater did not play particularly great. Uh, however, the Saints played some phenomenal football, including, if you recall, like that 12-10 victory over the Dallas Cowboys where Teddy yeah. tried to lose that game every way possible. So I would make the case that uh, it was the Saints that went 5-0 and more so than Bridgewater in those games. And I get it. He played several really good games, including a win in Seattle. So it wasn't like Bridgewater played poorly, but I think it was more about how well that the Saints played. I'm going to go ahead and bet the Raiders, and for no other reason than you're the best better I know, and I agree with you on this one. All right, we are going to go to best bets in the middle of the podcast. going to throw you a little curveball here. I'm going to have my best bet, and then Dave Essler comes in, and then the hitman with his best bet as well. Let me do mine first. Don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed. Fire up your pad and pencil. I give you a piece of my mind. Raiders quarterback Derek Carr over 3,099 and a half pass yards. This is a prop that is up at the Westgate. I got to tell you, I have a ton of respect for the Westgate handicappers and their line setting, but I think they just got this one completely wrong. I love Carr to get over 3,100 pass yards, and here's where the Westgate made a mistake, in my opinion. They brought The Raiders brought in Marcus Mariota, and the Westgate is anticipating that Mariota has a good chance to get quite a bit of playing time this year, and I could not disagree more. Derek Carr... He started 94 of the 96 games for the Raiders. He has been a very competent quarterback. In fact, he was number 10 in the league in QBR. The Raiders are not exactly projected to be a last-place team. They're supposed to win seven and a half games. And I think Carr is going to have a better year, at least as good a year, as he had last year. He certainly has the weapons. At wide receiver, you got Williams and Renfro back. You have a developing superstar and tight end, Waller. You've got a number one wide receiver pick in Ruggs, who is an absolute speedster. And they bring in another wide receiver, Aguilar, loaded at the receiver position. And frankly, the reason that the Raiders only won seven games last year was their defense, not their offense. And who is Marcus Mariota to even be in consideration for any kind of starting quarterback job? He's the guy that went two and four to start the year with the Tennessee Titans. He's the guy that got started the game at Denver where the Titans got shut out 16 to nothing, and then Tannehill takes over, and Tennessee winds up in the AFC title game. How many years do we have to see Mariota just completely and utterly underperform? 
you know, we get Carr over 3,099 yards, currently minus $1.10. I got to be honest, I think this is a good bet all the way up to over 3,300 pass yards. Six straight years, Carr has thrown over 3,200 yards. The last two years, over 4,000 yards. And now he has weapons. Best bet, Raiders, Derek Carr, over 3,099 and a half pass yards. My best bet. Yes, it's time. Diamond Dave Essler with his NFL Week 1 best bet. I got to tell you, this one gets my full endorsement. Go, Dave, go. I like and I bet the Chiefs-Texans under 56 points opening night Thursday. Look at the division playoff game last year. The total was 50. I know they scored 82. Are the Texans scoring 21 first quarter points? No. Are the Chiefs scoring 28 second quarter points? No. Although I don't think Houston will suffer as much as many do. They did get a couple new targets for Watson with Cooks and Cobb, but no solid offseason. Look at that game again last year. Houston had just played an overtime game against the Bills. Kansas City had the first round bye. Here's the thing. Only one of the Chiefs' home regular season games last year went over 56 points last season. To lose this bet, I need more than eight touchdowns. And without 73,000 fans, less preparation, and everything about the game being just different, I'll take full advantage of that inflated number, Chiefs-Texans under 56 points. The hitman, here he comes with his specialty, oh, an NFL player a prop bet. This one also gets my endorsement. Go, hitman, go. Best bet, Devontae Adams over 1,175 receiving yards. I see no reason why Adams' season-long projection shouldn't be closer to the Julio Jones and Michael Thomases of the league. Counting the playoffs, Adams is averaging 92 yards per game over his last two seasons. Now, over a full season, that comes out to 1,478 receiving yards. The Packers didn't add any receiving help in the offseason, and Rodgers is famous for only throwing to wideouts that he trusts. In an abbreviated offseason, Rodgers has even less time to gain chemistry with any other wideouts. Even if Adams misses one or two games, I think we hit this over, which is huge when you play these season-long props because you have to assume on an over that a player could miss a game or two. Best bet, Devontae Adams over 1,175 receiving yards. I actually fired on Devontae Adams 15-1 to 1 to lead the league in receiving. If Hitman's happy with his bet, I'm, I'm likely to be in contention for my bet as well. You know, let's pull back the curtain a little bit on some of these prop bets. There's only one football. So paying attention week by week in terms of who's in, who's out, you could really make some good coin in terms of these wide receiver bets. And, you know, you think no further than uh, teams like Tampa Bay, for instance. They, you know, they Mike Evans, great um, wide receiver. And you've got another number one wide receiver. And here comes Gronk. And at some point, it's going to impact – some of the receivers' production. And, you know, speaking of, of Tampa Bay, I know that like their last two weeks of the year, Evans was out and Godwin was out. And all of a sudden, Perryman, who had been like getting somewhere around 40 yards per game, went for over 100, I think, the last two weeks of the season. Mackenzie, go ahead and look up Perryman for Tampa Bay those last two weeks. And so, because of that, if you really pay attention to who gets banged up on the receiver core and the like, and I think the Raiders are a great team to follow with so many receivers this year, that could take away from some of the collective receivers and their yardage. And 
certainly when someone gets hurt or banged up, it can really open the door for a number three wide receiver that suddenly becomes the main target for a team. Last two games of the season, 236 yards. Not bad for a guy that got just over 600 yards for the whole season. Yeah, so we knew Winston was going to throw the ball to his players and to the opposing team, and uh, Perryman absolutely had huge games, as did, of course, the Houston secondary and the Atlanta secondary (laughs) as uh, Tampa Bay threw away both of those games late in the year. One more comment about sports betting in general. We always talk about 55% as the goal. We want to hit 55%. That's what pros are striving to do. That is not the case in prop betting. When you're playing some of these players and the like, it is not entirely unheard of to find prop bets that can win three out of four, that can win certainly 65%. You've seen it. Prop bet example, R.J. Bell identified a great prop bet playing Enos Cantor to go under his projected points per night. And uh, Cantor was uh, observing the Ramadan fast, so was unable to eat, to drink, or to take medicine during the day. And because of that, his minutes were greatly reduced. And so I know R.J. had some fantastic bets going under on points for Enos Cantor in last year's playoffs. Another example, Luka Doncic observing his 21st birthday down in South Beach in Miami earlier this year. RJ needed no other information other than that and the fact that he had a lingering wrist injury to go under 28 and a half points, which was the season average. I think at halftime he had like two points. It was it was one of those rocking chair bets. Another great example of how props can be the thing. And I think that's my term, a rocking chair bet. Let me explain what that is. That's a bet that you make. And you're just rocking in your rocking chair, not sweating it out at all. It's just an easy, easy watch knowing you're going to win that bet. And exactly right. When I I looked at the box score, I saw two points with like two minutes left in the first half. Luca was not going to get there. Last dance thoughts. The last dance has concluded. I know RJ has some great content on this. We're going to go ahead and provide that content from RJ, and then I'm going to summarize my thoughts from The Last Dance. Let me clear up the greatest of all time. We'll save hopefully a lot of time, though we know we won't. But I want you to think about this, and I think as you listen to other arguments, you're going to come back to this, and it's going to make a ton of sense, and here it is. Define what it is you mean by the greatest, because it might seem obvious But let's think of three different things it could be. One is, at his height, it was the best player we've ever seen. So you could make the case a guy, uh, Gale Sayers is the perfect example, old school football. I never saw him play. It was well before my time. But apparently he played like four and a half years, hurt his knee in a way that, you know, couldn't be operated on in a – healthy way or effective way for rehabilitation never I don't think he ever played again more or less played effectively you know obviously Bo Jackson and maybe a Bo Jackson would strike you in football that at his height maybe as good as anyone we've ever seen number two would be Emmett Smith Emmett Smith was never amazing there was never a thought I think the case could be made Emmitt Smith was never the best running back in the NFL on any given year. I think Barry Sanders would have beat him out a lot of years. Now, was there one year he was or not? I don't know. But for a guy who sits on top of the NFL rushing list, 
Emmett Smith had the least amount of years you can imagine being the clearly best player in the NFL. It was about accumulating stats, longevity. And if you draft somebody, that's probably the most important. right? If you're the Steelers and you pick a Big Ben, it's great to think about how Big Ben might be at his height. But it's also important, if not more important, to think he's going to have 15 years of top five in the league quarterback play. Would you rather have that or three years as the best? And then the rest may be out of the league or not good at all. Who knows? And then finally, it was it's about if we're playing Earth or for, for against the aliens for Earth, who do you want to be the captain of the team? They, they come down and say, we want to play some basketball. Now, you're hoping they don't fly or, you know, drop in the ball in from above the basket, hovering. But if it was like the stakes are as high as they can get and there's one game to play, who's that guy? You might say, well, RJ, that sounds a little bit like the first or, you know, like the, the, you know, the greatest moment. It's like, no, because some of those great performers that did amazing things weren't clutch performers. They weren't focused. They were focused in a way maybe on an Instagram like moment more than winning. And we've all seen the basketball players that go behind the back when they don't need to go behind the back. And it look when it happens, right? White thunder, white chocolate, <laughs> you know, there's all you know, the, all the different kind of uh let's just say showboating type plays that aren't necessary for winning. Now, sometimes uh, behind the back's necessary, right? And we can all sit and judge it, but we know the guys that are looking for attention and we know the guys that are looking to win. I would say John Stockton, whatever, wherever you rank him, Stockton's going to be very high when it comes to the accumulated stats because he was consistent for a long, long time. He's going to be mighty high when it comes to wanting to win. My sense was he wanted to win more than anything. And I saw a few videos and radio snippets on Stockton, because obviously he was getting attention in these last couple episodes, that really said this guy might be the best. You know, Magic was like not a point guard, really. He was, but he was so unlike any point guard ever. It was like, well, he was, but he's a different breed. This Stockton guy was the classic point guard. And Isaiah would have been on that list probably, Mark Jackson. But I never got a sense that Stockton was worried about showboating, right? So, to me, those are the categories. Highest height, wanting attention, uh, or let's say highest height, accumulated stats, and winning. Obviously, Michael's not the best at accumulated stats, and the more I've thought about this, and Jonas, I want to hear your thought. I'm R.J. Bell, straight out of Vegas, with Jonas Knox, Steve Fezzik. To me, LeBron reminds me more of Kareem. The more I think about it, a.k.a. Lou Alcindor. Steve, you familiar? I am. Skyhook? Yes. Goggles? <laughs> yeah. Airplane? In, when he was with Milwaukee, and Kareem, I was a, you know three years old or whatever, so I don't remember it, but they talk about his dominant period. And a lot of people remember more the 80s Kareem. And even come 79, 80, when Magic's rookie year and they won the first title, there was a sense of that Kareem was secondary. Because if you look at the Lakers' performance, 
the year before Magic, the year before that, they were, I think one year they missed the playoffs, the other year they were about 500. So Kareem by himself wasn't doing it. Magic shows up, they win a title. Okay, so doesn't mean Cream wasn't good in the 80s. It meant he was moving through the 30s and into his 40s at the end. But the fact that he played those years, they made it so his stats were the number one scorer of all time. But there was never a sense, and there's a famous story, that Magic won. They won the first game ever. So it was Magic's rookie year, first game, and there was a last-second shot. Magic hit it. He's running, he's jumping up in the stands, he's doing backflips, maybe not, but you know what I'm saying. And he jumps up into Cream's arms, and Cream says, we got 82 of these, kid, you better relax. So, in a way, Kareem being able to last 30-some years, or, or it seems like 30, a lot of years into his 30s and beyond, makes those counting stats so amazing. But at what point was he... Oh, my gosh, I want him to be the guy. He might have been a great, hey, if you're going to play the Aliens 10 different times in 20 years, you want Kareem on the first draft. But on any given year, Kareem didn't have many of those years that he was the best player. But he had a lot of years that he was the five best, seven best, whatever. LeBron seems to me to have lost a lot of games, meaning finals, where – the idea that MJ, you might say, well, is it better, Joe Montana, is it better not to go to the Super Bowl or to lose the Super Bowl? Would you rather lose earlier? How can that be better? There is a mystique if someone doesn't ever lose when the chips are really down. There is. But you forget about Jordan, and this reinforced it to me. Every year after he busted through, so give him credit. It was Larry Bird. It was those Pistons. But when he busted through, every year that he started with the team, they won the title. That's it. There was three years to start. Started one, started one, started one. Baseball, missed a season, came back with 17 games or whatever. Didn't win. Now, would it have been cool if he won? Yeah. But it shows you, in a way, if he would have won there, it would have been an indictment of the league. There was a young Shaq and a young Penny at that point that were able to beat him. And if you watch the end of this and you saw against Utah, especially those two years, how good the Jazz were on the road or at home, the idea of beating Malone and Stockton was a win. It was not easy to beat them. And it was literally one play here or one play there. But one guy always made those plays. And no one else in the history of the league has ever been that much of a winner once he broke through. And LeBron broke through at a certain point. And since then, he's lost more finals and he's won. There's a difference there. And I got to be honest, I'm so happy I wasn't live wagering back in the late 90s on these games. <laughs> How many times did we see, oh, the Bulls are down 11, Jordan looks exhausted already, Pippen's not 100%. I'm like, oh, they're going to get blown out, and then they go back to win outright. So, Jonas, that idea of Kareem and LeBron, which I haven't really heard before, and that accumulate, where I think they're inversely related. The ability to get so up for every big game that you don't lose means you can't play 20 years like that, that you're going to be like a shooting comet in a way, and you're going to be there and then take two years or a year and a half off, then be there again, then take three years off and try to come back. And finally, he was old enough that he was getting beat, 
So he played a one year that was okay. Second year, he said, I'm going to do this right. Played 82, scored over 20 points a game, and then he was done. That seems like a different breed of player. Yeah, no, it's a different breed. And also, your comparison with Emmett Smith, I would, I would put it to you this way. Who's had a better career as an NFL player, Walter Payton or Frank Gore? I mean, it's Walter Payton, and it's not close. And Frank Gore might pass him on the all-time rushing list. So that's where we have got to do our due diligence to not just look at stats at the end of the day and really put into context somebody's impact on the game, and nobody comes close to Jordan. And if the term is impact, then it starts getting into, well, what was the business ramifications? And, you know, where David Stern was obviously very cognizant that Jordan was such a key part of the growth of the NBA. And one of the last things said on the whole doc was there was 80-some countries we were in when he started and 250 when we were done or whatever the numbers were. I think those are generally right. And that's another factor. But I would say this, Frank Gore might have had the better career but Walter Payton was the better player. Yeah, 100%. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think you could say reasonably, and this is the big windup, you could reasonably say that LeBron had the better career than Michael. Because you could say, okay, three titles versus six. and But now how much does the regular season successes matter? How much does that... 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th year and counting. He'll probably have 20, 22 years. That can't be nothing. It can't be that a season doesn't mean anything if you don't win a title. But I think that a title is probably worth three or four seasons, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, it's a debate if you want to say who had the better career. But if you want to debate who the better player is, you're insane. The other one, I would just say Madison Bumgarner and Clayton Kershaw. I mean, just think about those two careers. Some people would argue Madison Bumgarner had, a, had the better career but isn't close to the pitcher that Kershaw is because of the World Series. And it's funny because with Kershaw, there's a sense that he's the better pitcher, but there's a lack of clutch. Yeah. I don't think anyone thinks – I mean, everyone that has a brain thinks Jordan was more clutch than LeBron. But does any – I'm serious. You couldn't think otherwise. <laughs> so, RJ, episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance finished up last night on ESPN. And so the debate continues, Jordan or LeBron? No, it doesn't. <laughs> the only way that you can do LeBron is if you say accumulated results – Regular season points, you know, those Tuesday nights in Utah kind of, or now Portland, those kind of nights. And I let's, let's be candid. They're meaningful. But when have you ever heard a fan base? Let's think of the teams like a Philadelphia now. Philadelphia has won a good, I mean, for a team that was the Sixers in the toilet for years. They called it the process. It was the toilet <laughs> they, they have, they've won a lot of games. Do you have any sense, Fez, of 76er fans who are contented by how the team's doing? Like, yep, this is what we've been waiting for. We want to make those playoffs, and <laughs> maybe the first round will win. And if we lose in the second, hey, a lot of nice Tuesday nights in Portland. No, there was like a two-month window when they, they were doing very well. Then they lost to Boston as a favorite, and then right back to the process isn't working. And it doesn't matter if the two months or not, if they would have lost in the playoffs. And you could say, oh, the team that beat them, Toronto, they made a shot that was almost impossible. And if they just didn't make that shot, Sixers would have won. And who knows? If Toronto had won the rest of the games, that means the Sixers could have won. 
Yep, and they didn't. And just like Carl Malone, who was one of the two, I guess, him and Russell, they said, uh, actually, one of the producers over at Dan Patrick tweeted out, the only two people that refused to participate in the last dance was Russell and Carl Malone, which is interesting. They won a lot of games. Right? And maybe in Utah, they're okay with it. Right? Because let's be candid, they're not used to like great sports. And I love how much passion the Jazz haven't had. I mean, it's, a, it's almost like a college team. And, you know, whereas they're so into, like, Ohio State, you can't walk around Columbus without seeing Ohio State gear. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. It doesn't matter if they won the last game. It is, like, half the wardrobe of that typical guy. I mean, I went to school there, I promise. And that passion, that, that, that encompassing their life is what Utah seems to have. And when the team lost to Jordan that fans were crushed did you see how despondent everyone looked when Jordan hits all these game-winning shots and they just we go home now now some people might say and that's Steve Fezzik you know a documentary what they do is they just glorify the great and that he missed some of those shots why didn't they show those and it's like okay fair enough but here's what we know Jordan won the first year they won they won and then after that, there were five seasons that Jordan started with the team. And for five seasons, at the end, the last picture of the season was Jordan with a trophy in his hand. So literally, you could, listen, I was around. I was a kid. I was 18 or whatever. When Jordan was losing, there was a lot of talk about, yeah, guy's a showboat. Guy can, you know, he can fly. He's got air underneath him. But when the chips are down, he doesn't win. That was the story. You remember that. Oh, you weren't even a sports fan. It's just a big score. A lot of talk about that. The fact of the matter is that was true. And if he, imagine if Michael had never won a title. If somehow, some way... He was like Dominique Wilkins. <laughs> great Do- example. Dominique was a great player. I mean, him and Bird had that duel that really was something. I remember watching that game. But the fact of the matter was, there was something about Dominique that he couldn't get over the top. Now, if you listen to the pure math guys, they'll say, oh, no, 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 no. That's all random. If anything, and Jonas, tell me what you think. The fact that Michael was so focused on winning that he did things beyond the court. If it was from being a bad guy and controlling along the people, the other teammates, telling him the standard. And when he said it, those people, the new people, they didn't do what I did to get us here. And if we're going to move forward, we're going to do it my way. And if they don't want to, they can find another team. And then when he says something like, you might say I was too hard on him, he goes, I would say you've never won anything. And he never asked anyone to do something that he himself did not do. I think that's fair, too. And, I mean, it's a fair statement. So my point is you can hate Jordan for it if you want, if you've never won anything, for example. But you can't say he didn't affect the winning. You can't say that, that he was just like anyone else. Because it seems to me that his sacrifices for winning, and here's what's interesting as we go to Jonas with it. The same thing that allows LeBron to accumulate those stats are the things that make it hard for MJ or made it hard to play for 20 years. That when you burn that bright, that intense, it burns out quicker. And, I mean, even when he was in his 
what, 30 years old. He couldn't do it. It was too much. It was like, if I have another year, I have to win a fourth. And a, imagine it. He had two three-peats and didn't even get a chance for a four-peat each time. That, in a way, is an indictment. That's nothing you would glorify. But it shows you, even MJ, that no one's ever burnt this bright. And he couldn't do it that fourth year in a row, two different times. And in a way, that makes it more amazing what he did. So, Jonas, I know the stats guys are always saying, oh, well, you know, there is no clutch, blah, blah, hot hand theory. Watching this reinforced to me how much Michael did off the court to help them win. Yeah, and your point on how how bright he burned, you can watch the final two, the last season of both championship runs, he looked completely out of gas. Like, he, he had the pedal to the metal for so long that physically and emotionally he was spent. I watched last night and I said... God, I mean, I don't know if they would have had another year in him. If he wanted to come back, I have no idea what he would have looked like because he looked like he was completely out of gas in the in the final season of, of 98. And that was the second time he ran out of gas, which is just, you know, goes to your point. When you burn that hot for so long, sooner or later you're going to burn out. And he did twice. And his uh, athletic trainer, who made um, – he was the guy that was talking about the pizza. Yeah. Right? And – and we got to talk about that. But he said, and it was fascinating, I actually listened, first time I ever listened to a book on tape. I've never done that before. But I, mm. I figure this is when I can listen in the background. And it was from his trainer. And he was talking about Michael a ton. And this fellow also trained Kobe and Dwayne Wade. So, I mean, he's been with, you know, and he talks about Michael like it's a different breed. Like there's Michael and there's everyone else. And that's probably true, or that's true in my opinion. But... He said that when you are so focused on every decimal point, as in, if I tie my shoes this way, if I put on one pound, if I lose one pound, if I sleep this much, whatever it was he was thinking about, because it wasn't just being a good basketball player, it was him, him changing his body, where he was a certain body type early on. Later, he put on a bunch of muscle to deal with Detroit. Then he went and played baseball, needed a different kind of body for that. Then he came back to play basketball. And the footage with him and when he was recording his movie Space Jam and his emphasis on this next season, we better be ready. It's like he obviously was very deliberate, Michael, about the way he approached his health, his body. And he goes, when all you're doing is obsessing over that, when you get to be the best... You don't have anyone to compare yourself to. All those years when you were playing against Detroit and they were winning, you could say, I'm going to keep doing this, this, and this because i got to get over the hump. But once you get over the hump, where do you go? You try to repeat. Okay. You try to three-peat. Okay. Now, is, it, is four-peat important? Yeah, but is that more important than five-peat or six-peat? We going out to Bill Russell, nine out of 11 or whatever? And... He says that's the time a guy like this or so few of them will have to quit almost for their own sanity because they got no reference point. They're in that. It's like once you become and that's funny, as much as any other player, you could make the case has had their time in the sun. So Durant and and the, the Golden State team, they were as good as any team, you could say. I think that you, it's fair to say. But there's no one player that you ever thought was even better than LeBron. Like, I, oh, no. Yeah. yeah. So now you got LeBron who's losing more finals than he wins. You've got everyone else that can't get better than LeBron. 
So no one, and forget chasing the ghost of Michael Jordan. So to me, the idea that you get on top, when you have Larry Bird saying, I've never seen anyone play. Like, like the guy was in his second year, third year. It was his second year after his injury, he put up 63. And Larry Bird saying, that wasn't Michael Jordan. That was God playing basketball. And imagine a second, imagine Zion next season being discussed like that. That's what it was. I can't even fathom that. It'd be a lot of people saying, well, we'll see if he can do it for seven years. You know, a lot of naysayers, and probably rightfully so. And Michael didn't even play a second year till the end. So literally yeah. when Bird said that, he had one full season and like 15 games to end the year. And then the playoffs, they were a below 500 team that year because he didn't play much. And you got Bird saying, I've never seen anyone like that. He was just in a different universe. <laughs> and by 1993, his first retirement, many people in the media said the greatest NBA player in the history of the NBA has just retired. That's only halfway through his championships. And you could make, and you could make the case, and, and I think rightfully so, you could make the case that he would have met the criteria of maybe having the highest height yeah. at that point. But that's the balance. If you're, yeah. if you're going to be in between the accumulation of stats, which is LeBron and Kareem, let's say, and the highest height, there's that middle ground, which is this is the biggest winner. He might not have played as many years, but what we know is this. If you want to talk about the way that documentaries edited is the idea that every time he started with a team after learning how to win, after breaking through, and what we're doing by saying it that way is eliminating the one year he came back with 15 games – and it's hard to say if he can come back with 15 games and win it when they actually had a bad supporting cast that year, too. Rodman wasn't there, but Horace Grant was gone. It was the one year they didn't have a good four. I think they had a losing record when he came back. Yeah. They had a losing record when he came back. And it was a situation where it was a shock that they lost. I remember when Nick Anderson stripped him and it was like you couldn't believe it. And it never happened again. So what part, if you could tell one story to your grandkids, Jonas, what would that one story be from The Last Dance? Oh, God. I would, I would just give an overall, to make people understand how great he was, I would just say outside of Tom Brady, he's the only athlete that I can think of, maybe George Foreman you could put in there, that had two Hall of Fame careers. Yeah, that's interesting. That is fascinating. Now, Brady, it's funny. I think he's undisputably the GOAT in football. And I don't even put him in the universe of Jordan. And some of it might be because no one player in the NFL who's only playing half the time, he's one out of 11, and he's one out of 22 if you count both sides of the ball. And when you're one out of five, it's just you just – one great player affects things so much. I mean, think about all the great players in the NFL – like Megatron, like Barry Santa. They all seem to be Detroit. I don't know. But like, like Megatron could have been the best receiver or well, well, Jerry Rice. But, you know, it's very fair to say Megatron was the third best receiver after Moss and Rice. I think that's reasonable. At his height, didn't even sniff the playoffs or sniff winning anything. I mean, think about OJ. How many Super Bowl? I mean, listen, OJ was a great running back. A lot of people thought Jim Brown and OJ for a long time. Walter Payton, Walter Payton didn't make a Super Bowl till he was like in his what mid thirties. NFL, it's just a, it's a team game. Yeah, doesn't mean a player isn't great. Doesn't mean he wasn't instrumental to the winning. 
But you put Tom Brady on a crappy team, it doesn't matter. You put uh, MJ in his prime on a crappy team, they probably almost win it. They ju- I mean, I think we saw a crappy team the year he came back with 17 games. I think they, that he was an underdog to win it, but he could have. Yeah. To me, I'm going to tell you the one moment if I was telling the grandkids about MJ what it would be. They did a great job in the documentary on the last game, game six in Utah, how they would have been underdogs, Jordan, against Utah in that game seven. If Pippen was out, they would have been. You notice they had the bad beat last night on SportsCenter where they were showing, the, I think it was game four maybe, but it, the line was only Chicago by five and a half. Right. So, I mean, home field's four for the Bulls. You know, they, they were saying the Bulls were one, one, you know, one and a half points better. So, you, game seven at home, Utah with the best home court in the NBA. Utah's probably objectively a three-point favorite. Probably would have been closer to, you know, one just because of MJ. But that's where we were with 50 seconds left. It was, what, 95% that, you know, if Utah has the ball at that point, they're up and there's 50 seconds left. And MJ, I mean, or, again, it was the Bulls had the ball, had to score to be down one at that point. So they were down three, and they gave MJ the ball, and he just had to score fast. So it was because they wanted two for one, as they were talking about. So he scores, like, in four seconds. Like, you would think they would have done anything to stop and put No, he just went straight. That, that was fascinating that they didn't double-team Jordan. The thing I saw with Jordan is everything that ever happened, he had a reason it happened. Mm-hmm. Like he was talking about Russell and the way that he moves too fast. And, and in the play of the plays ever, he did exactly to exploit that. He said, Malone, they ran that set every time the pressure was on. And because Jordan didn't clear, he couldn't see him. Like, this guy was using his brain, as he said. It was almost like he was in the Utah huddle, right? That he knew exactly where that ball was going, and he went and got it. And he took it. It's almost like we always talk about dad mode, is if you're playing your dad and he didn't want you to win, you might be up 9-7 going to 10, and he's going to block you three times and dunk on you or whatever. You're on an eight-foot hoop, and it's over. It's like MJ, at this advanced age, that was his last play in his prime. He didn't play for three years. And to do that, he was the MVP of the NBA Finals the second time he retired. He was the MVP of the Finals the first time he retired. The third time he wasn't. Right? <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, this guy, you could say, hey, maybe MJ should have been able to burn that bright and play 20 years too. And I'd say, who's ever done that? We've had a lot of guys have careers like Emmett Smith. I mean, it's amazing. But we haven't had anyone reach MJ's height and even stay there as long as he did. And I think it should tell you how rare it is. Do we appreciate LeBron? We should. But he's not MJ if we're looking at the highest height. If we're looking at who's going to win with the chips or down. If you're looking at lunch pail, go to work every day and get your points, I'll give it to LeBron. But if you're de- Or Kareem. But if you're debating the greatest... I don't think it's a debate. In fact, I personally judge people that think otherwise. <laughs> I mean, just their intellectual heft. That's, I mean, no big deal. Well, Jordan literally got poisoned the night before the big game. And his mom's like, you can't even play. And then he goes out there and just drops 40 on Utah and wins the game. My last thoughts on the last dance. I want to talk about Michael Jordan and just how focused the man was in each and every NBA season. I got to tell you. I was ultra impressed. 
at seemingly every night he went out there and performed. And we talked about all these seasons. We provided the data, I think, in other podcasts about how he would play the full 82 games, would not miss a game his last three years when it really, if ever there was a time to cause that called for load management and maybe to make a business decision and not play that night in Cleveland or in Boston. And he just was up for each and every game. And even during the off season, what most impressed me 1995 during the summer when he was filming space jam, he had a grueling schedule filming during the day. And what did he do when he wasn't filming? Well, he had Warner Brothers build him a basketball court and a workout facility right there on studio, and he would just play basketball and work out and bring in other NBA players to play against. So here was a player that seemingly all year round was just completely focused and driven on being the best player that he could be. And he was rough on his teammates, but I'll say this. Jordan never asked any of his teammates to do anything or to have any level of commitment that wasn't commensurate with what he himself did. He led by example. And what stood out to me also from the documentary, the end of 1993, when they have their first three-peat, the media is coming on, some select media talking about Jordan saying, Michael Jordan, the greatest NBA player we have ever seen. So think about this. This isn't after his six championships. This is after three championships. So he was already being described as the GOAT before retiring and then coming back and just for good measure, three-peating again. There is no debate. Michael Jordan is the GOAT. The Mackenzie Fezzik Poker Invitational Tournament we're a quarter of the way done. There's a rule in this tournament. Here's the rules. We're playing heads up. We're playing with 100 big blinds. We both started with 200 chips. And it's best two out of three. Whoever wins two out of three winds up winning the championship. I put up $1,000. And McKenzie has an $800 stake. RJ put up $200 on the McKenzie side for this contest. And has an interesting rules quirk, if you will. If we play six hours of heads-up play and there is no winner, regardless of where we are at that point in the contest, McKenzie wins. However, he's not allowed to stall, so he has to play at a regular pace. So we're an hour and a half in so far, and after McKenzie did take an early lead in the contest, but things have changed a little bit. Latest chip count, still close. I have 239 chips. McKenzie, you have 161, so I've got about 60% of the chips. I am feeling confident, and I think it's just a matter of grinding Mr. Rivers down and playing my A game. McKenzie, your thoughts? I could really sense an uptick in your not only your confidence, but your aggression in that last session. It took me back a little. I, I, had, to, I had to take a second to get my bearings. I still think, before it's all said and done, I think I'm going to get you. <laughs> you know, it's, what's interesting about this is that as we – keep ticking towards that six-hour mark, I'm going to be forced to be even more aggressive because I can't lose on time. So it brings me back to my chess background. I used to play with a chess clock, and we play five-minute uh, tournaments where you have to make all your moves in five minutes. And literally, well, you're going to lose 
if you lose on time, you lose 100% of the time. And so if need be, if we're five and a half hours in, I, I would literally have to go all in like every hand to force McKenzie's hand here and get a resolution, win or lose. I'm not going to say it's going to come to that, but uh, that's certainly on the table. McKenzie, you've never had any experience with uh, a heads-up live play before. Am I correct in that? Mostly correct. I did one time, maybe the first time I was ever in the state of New Jersey, Atlantic City. I'd played about six hours of poker. I was up like $1,000. It was by far the greatest night in my life at that point, being 22, 23. Everybody left the table except for me and one other guy. And, um, well, he gave me a cigarette afterwards. I'll say that much. I'm just having like a mental note that at one table, you've got Johnny Chan getting bluffed by Matt Damon. And then you got Mackenzie Rivers like donking off his stack, calling with middle pair <laughs> against his heads up opponent. Which one makes the the movies, Mackenzie? Uh, I think I think I'm gonna go with Matt Damon and Rounders. Right? He's, he's got the hair. For those following the Mackenzie and Fezzik Poker Invitational, all you have to do is follow my Twitter at Fezzik Sports. I will be tweeting out some video over pregame.com, showing some select hands and some commentary. You can follow Fezzik versus McKenzie. What a podcast here. RJ will be back for the next podcast. And it was my pleasure talking about Las Vegas Neon. It coming back on June 1st, MLB, NBA. We are waiting. We fully expect we're going to see games here this summer in both sports NFL teams, teams we're going to look to bet against early in the year. Of course, best bets with myself, Dave Essler, Diamond Dave Essler, and the hitman. RJ's thoughts about the last dance along with my thoughts as well. And finally, poker update, McKenzie versus Fezzik. We're going to look to be setting a betting line in the future on of that Thanks to all of you for listening. You guys are what drives this show, and we appreciate each and every one of you. Have a great week, guys.